The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream the library online. Learn more at gettysburgcollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Wyoming, Luzerne County. In 1778, the true brutal nature of the American Revolution was revealed when a joint Loyalist and Indian force raided a settlement here at Wyoming. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Wyoming is historian Bob Mischak and author Mark Ziak. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Bob, tell us about your background. Well, I was born and raised in Wyoming Valley. I'm a history major in college, and uh, I've had, I spent a lot of time reading about the local history. And from youth up, I was always interested in going to the museum and seeing displays in there about the Battle of Wyoming. So I have tried to find out as much about it as I possibly could. Mark? Uh, well, I took a route through English. Uh... I, uh, I work as an educational book producer. Uh, I write for fun. I also have a love of history. Uh, all through my childhood, I've loved learning everything I could. Military history, archeology, span ancient history, more modern. Uh, and I live only a few miles from here. And it was kind of inevitable that I would, I would start to focus on the Battle of Wyoming. So about 15 years ago, I started reading about it. Um, I wanted to gather everything I could put it together, make sense of it, kind of interpret it so people could understand it easily if they're not familiar with it. Uh, and I wrote a book about it in 2008. And since then, uh, I've just been learning more and more and uh, getting into archeology span a little bit more, getting into some other topics and some other pursuits. Right now we're in the town of Wyoming here in the 21st century, but what was this place like in the 18th century? Well, it was, uh, from what I've read, it was a, a natural paradise. It was. We had the, the river, the Susquehanna River, uh, fertile land, the mountains for protection. Uh, there was so much here for people. I mean, Native Americans had been here for more than 10,000 years. Uh, then all through colonial times, people have, have wanted to live here and they wanted to control this land because of how much it offered. Bob, well, who lived here? Uh, Wyoming Valley was originally settled in the 1770s by people from Connecticut. So they imparted to the area a New England culture. It was a, essentially a, an isolated frontier settlement. Farming was the main occupation. There were wide 
plains of bottomland that were quite fertile on either side of the river. They had a population of about 2,000. There were a few general stores, but most products were produced at home. You mentioned uh, these Connecticut, maybe almost outsiders, bringing a New England style of life here. Were there other people here who didn't fit into that same style of life? Well, there, this area was claimed legally by both Connecticut and Pennsylvania. And therefore, both, almost at the same time, around 1770, decided they wanted to colonize. They had approached the king in council about deciding which of the two colonies should own it or if they should own it jointly. But unfortunately, the king and council dropped the ball and refused to make a decision. And that essentially condemned both sides to a conflict. And both sides did indeed fight a number of times during this period until a final decision was made by a court set up at Trenton to decide who should actually own it, who had the better claim, and that turned out to be Pennsylvania. The year 1778, we're in the middle of the American Revolution. Uh, what's going on in the war at this point? Well, the war had been going on for about three years, since 1775. Uh, the Patriots were probably doing a lot better than people expected them to against the British, the, the best army in the whole world. Um, so both sides had had some victories and some defeats. Uh, by 1778, the British were starting to have to reevaluate the way that they were approaching it. They, they were taking the American patriots a lot more seriously. And instead of trying to chase George Washington's army all across the world, they said, let's take a different approach here. Uh, let's take the war to the frontiers. Let's start fighting in the Indian style. You know, let's have uh, more irregular warfare. Uh, they started thinking, how can we disrupt Washington, and how can we, you know, you know, hurt, hurt him so he couldn't, he can't travel, he can't beat us, he can't trick us. How can we hurt him from behind? So that kind of set the stage for the strategies that led to the Battle of Wyoming. The American Revolution, in a lot of ways, is, is a war of ideologies. It's a political war. Uh, so ideologies are important to understand this event. Can we talk about the differences between being a patriot and being a loyalist? Uh, in the 18th century? Uh, an American patriot, or actually Whig as he was called at that time, was someone who felt that the 13 colonies of Britain should now become free and independent countries, united, however, for strength and effectiveness. A loyalist, or a Tory, was an American who felt that the 13 colonies of Britain should remain as such. And whether uh, you were a patriot or a loyalist, a number of them felt that they should act upon these beliefs by taking up arms against one another. And so you, you had this civil war, of, uh, as, as might, it might be considered, uh, of one political view against the other that consumed the entire war on the frontier. Did this region have uh, a noticeable bend, patriot or loyalist, during that time? Uh, yes, they were mostly patriot. A few loyalists did live in Wyoming Valley, uh, a few of them uh, as secret loyalists, until they revealed themselves. 
Most of the loyalists that were in the area, however, lived in the upriver area to the north. There was a lot of tension between the Patriots and the Loyalists, and uh, the Patriots had a strong majority. Uh, and from what I've read, they were they could be pretty cruel to the Loyalists. Uh, there was a lot of uh, yeah, harassment. Maybe they would take Loyalists' lands away from them. Uh, physical violence, maybe. These are all things that are part and parcel of any partisan war, you could say. Uh, do you have any specific examples of, of if you were a loyalist here, why you might want to remain hidden? Other than the fact that you were surrounded by, by patriots, uh, that would essentially be the, on, the only reason, fear of reprisal against you. Were you physically threatened? Were you physically unsafe to reveal yourself? Yes, there was some physical violence threatened against loyalists. And there was one instance where a number of them from upriver and even in Wyoming Valley were arrested for the crime of being loyalists and taken to Connecticut where they were tried. Eventually Connecticut used some more sense on it and decided to release them. But the fact that they were actually tried as that showed the animosity between the two sides. I always like to talk about uh, the politics of, of today compared to the politics of then and see how little we've changed. Case in point, in 2016, only 54% of eligible voters voted. So what that means is you have a whole bunch of people who either aren't taking sides or aren't paying attention. Uh, did that exist during this time period or was everybody on one side or the other here? John Adams, during the American Revolution itself, made the statement that one third of the population of America was loyalist, one third was patriot, and one third was neutral. And historians have adjudged that he made a correct decision on that. And even those who were patriot or loyalists sometimes just sat back and let things happen the way they were going to happen. Yeah, it, it was not an era where someone wanted to risk his life uh, to carry out their, their beliefs in all situations. We mentioned in 1778 the British looking to the frontiers as a possible way of disrupting life for Washington's army. Uh, you can't talk about the frontiers without talking about the native peoples who live here. So uh, what native peoples lived in this region? The original group of Native Americans who lived here were, have been here for at least 10,000 years. We're just learning bits and pieces about them. We don't know their name. We don't know a whole lot of details. We have to focus on archaeology to you know, piece together a little bit of their story. But uh, they, they disappeared in the 1500s. Uh, the valley was almost empty. Uh, for a lot of reasons, that's a whole show by itself, I suppose. But uh, after that, the, uh, the valley was contested. I, it didn't have a lot of occupants, but the Iroquois, which was a confederation of uh, six uh, Indian nations in upstate New York, they they always had a they always had a strong interest in Wyoming Valley. So uh, through the 1700s, as just as the colonists were trying to push in, everybody was pushing in at the same time. The uh, the Iroquois started to uh, try to assert themselves and try to uh, get themselves more involved. Uh, they had s people from smaller groups. Uh, they've arranged for them to move in. Uh, kind of just to hold their spot, you know. Uh, 
so a, a number of smaller, uh, smaller groups moved in here, native groups uh, along the river. How did those people interact with the uh, early settlers from Europe in this area? Well, uh, we know that by the time that the, the Wyoming Valley was permanently settled in the 1770s, for the most part, the Indians were gone. Uh, one of the reasons for that was the few that had remained here up till that time were told by the Iroquois that they should leave the valley. And the reason for that was because they had made an agreement with Pennsylvania in which Pennsylvania paid them 2,000 pounds for uh, quite a bit of what is northeastern Pennsylvania today. Therefore, these, uh, the Iroquois who controlled the Indians that, had, that were living here told the few that, that remained, we can't protect you anymore if the white man want to throw you out. And they now own the land, so you should leave. And most of them did. Uh, if any remained, it was only a handful. So that when the settlers from both Pennsylvania and Connecticut tried to establish themselves here, uh, there were really no Indians to face. And the few that were got along well with them and lived on the margin of the white society. One of them was a man named John Toby, and he gave his name to Toby's Creek and Toby's Cave, which are both historical sites in Wyoming Valley. Uh, an interesting detail maybe I could throw in there is at the 44th Cemetery, where uh, Nathan Dennison and some of the, uh, the really upstanding members of the Connecticut colony here are buried. It's probably one of our oldest cemeteries here. Uh, there are two tombstones that are very mysterious. And do you, are you familiar with these? I'm sure you are. Uh, and they have symbols on them. And I don't think anybody has ever determined what they were, but they appear to be Native American graves, handmade in the middle of all these beautiful, uh, you know, European American uh, tombstones, two Native American graves. And that always struck me as, isn't that interesting? Like you always would assume that they're on the outskirts, but in a lot of cases, there was a lot of uh, intermingling. We've talked about how the coming of the revolution had a way of fracturing communities that existed. Uh, how did that affect the Indians of North America? As we were talking about the Iroquois, uh, they did form a confederacy uh, of the six nations and that confederacy was done mainly to forestall sub, um, subservience to the white colonies like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, which often happened to tribes acting alone. Uh, many Indian tribes had tried confederations, but none of them were as organized, effective, and dedicated as the Six Nations. And because of that, they were, they were able to avoid this subservience, but other, other Indian tribes were not. And they tended to, uh, their, their culture would tend to change because of this reliance and dependence on uh, the white societies. But we have to remember also that in early America, in the colonial period, the Iroquois were a major, major power in the Northeast. Uh, they were pretty much on par with the the British and the French uh, in the 1700s, uh, politically and militarily, uh, the, the colonists, had, that was a major force. They wanted to either befriend them or keep them out entirely. They did not want the Iroquois to go against them. 
So they did an excellent job of, you know, avoiding losing their power and gaining power, becoming like a, a superpower of sorts. Did they choose a side between uh, the British and the Patriots? Well, uh, the nations were split. A lot of them didn't want to fight. Some of them preferred the Patriots, but for the most part, the Iroquois did side with the British. And the, the two major uh, Iroquois military uh, nations were the Seneca and the Mohawk, and they both sided with the British. Uh, could we talk about Indian warfare? That's going to have a lot to do with what happens here. Um, very brutal in some cases. Uh, what's your experience with that? I have no experience with Indian warfare, luckily. Uh, but from what I've read, uh, there was European-style warfare, like civilized warfare, whatever, um, where the combatants would walk up to each other and look at each other and shoot each other with guns face to face, like we saw in the Civil War. Uh, in the Revolution, people were thinking differently. There was more Indian involvement. So, uh, like the Patriots to an extent, and surprisingly the British to an extent embraced uh, Indian warfare which is fighting in the woods, where you don't have open fields and you don't have strategies and generals, where you have warriors running, hiding behind trees, hiding in the swamp, jumping out at you, uh, doing whatever they could with small bands instead of huge armies, uh, really using the benefits of nature, uh, a whole different kind of fighting. And it took a lot of people by surprise and it helped to, uh, to really shake things up militarily in North America. Could we talk about as we move closer to the event that brings us here today, uh, leadership. Uh, who were some of the major leaders on the Patriot side? Well, there was uh, two mainly who ended up being commanders during the Battle of Wyoming. Zebulon Butler on the east side of the valley and Nathan Dennison on the west side. Zebulon Butler and Nathan Dennison both were settlers from Connecticut, as were most of the people in the valley at that time. Zebulon Butler would have been considered and acknowledged as the most important person in the entire valley. He was the one they went to as the father figure for advice, leadership. He had military experience in the French and Indian War. He led the Yankees through most of the first Yankee Panamite War and he was chosen as the first colonel of the local militia. Nathan Dennison originally was not a leader until he got married. Then something happened and suddenly all these latent skills of leadership began to emerge. Now I don't know if that was due to his wife's um, influence on, on him and, and uh, inspiration, or was it her nagging? But uh, he eventually rose and became second to, to Zebulon Butler as a leader. One little anecdote about Zebulon Butler that I always thought kind of helped to sum up his character was that the, the local Native Americans gave him a name, and if I recall correctly, it was translated as Great Oak Tree or something to that effect. And it really d demonstrated that he was the, the backbone of this community in a lot of ways. Who were the major leaders on the Indian side? The Indians who were allied with the, the British cause, uh, probably their most notable war chief that we're familiar with today, a lot of it we don't know, unfortunately, but the most well-known leader was called Old Smoke. Uh, he was a Seneca war chief. Uh, not a lot is known about him. He was a loyalist. He was always friends with the British 
Uh, he got along with John Butler, who was the, the loyalist commander in the Battle of Wyoming. Uh, and the really fascinating thing about Old Smoke was that he was old. He was uh, about 80 at the time of the battle. And you'd think, I mean, in conditions like today, like it's so hot out and traveling from almost Canada to Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania, strenuous, strenuous. But he was about 80, but he was a big, strong guy, and he, apparently he had no problems. He led right through the battle. His uh, actual Indian name was Sayan Karakta, and he was essentially the leader of the Indians at the Battle of Wyoming. He commanded 350 Seneca warriors. Now there were some other tribes involved, about 100 others, about 100 other warriors from other tribes, but they chose to take orders from, from him. Uh, so powerful was his personality and his leadership. Uh, so that any communication from John Butler to whether it was Seneca's or Onondaga's or Cayuga's or Delaware's had to go through saying Caracta or Old Smoke. You both mentioned an important name, John Butler. Let's talk about who these loyalists were. Well, John Butler was a New York colonist and he was a, a loyalist. He grew up in a, a military family and he also grew up close to uh, Iroquois communities. So as a child, he had friends who were, uh, you know, English colonists and uh, Indians. So he kind of grew up between these two cultures and kind of became a liaison between them. Uh, and that was a, it was a time when that was very important because Britain wanted, they wanted people who could work both sides. There was a gentleman named uh, Sir William Johnson who was the, uh, the Indian agent, the top Indian agent for Britain. And he met John Butler and he was very impressed. He took him on as uh, an assistant. Uh, and they worked together on a lot of diplomatic deals to uh, land deals and uh, you know, treaty deals and uh, alliances with different tribes. Uh, and they also became involved militarily in the French and Indian War. Uh, so John Butler got military experience, diplomatic experience. He was very well respected by both sides. Uh, the colonists and the Indians, uh, strongly loyal um, to the king. Uh, he lived in New York. Uh, in 1776, I believe, patriots uh, arrested his family, uh, ransacked his house, and that, that really set him away. And he said, I'm going to, what am I going to do? I'm going to like try to get my, my revenge on the patriots. So he, um, he used his skills, his military skills, and his skills in dealing with the Indians to raise a force of rangers, which were irregular troops who would fight much like the Indians did, and work closely with the Indians. And they were called the Butler's Rangers. Could we talk about how rangers uh, and Indian warriors fight together, and maybe some of the, if you want to call them, successes they had before the events here that, in 1778? Uh, Butler's Rangers, uh, were formed in 1777, and they really had no experience before the Battle of Wyoming. The Battle of Wyoming and the Battle at Cherry Valley were their first two encounters with the um, frontier patriot militia. Uh, they were both victories, but as the war continued, the success of Butler's Rangers began to decline. They were victorious at the beginning. And their reason for existence, at least according to what John Butler said in, in his writings, was to support 
and to accompany the Indians that were now going to be employed by the British against the Patriots as a, 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 something to rely on so the Indians could, could uh, handle things a little bit better. So they were mainly a support for, for the Indians. There was a little, very little independent activity of Butler's Rangers. What made this region a potential target for the, this loyalist Indian force compared to other places? Many reasons. Um, the land was very fertile. Most of it was farms. And uh, since most of the people were patriots, they were happy to support Washington's army with just loads and loads and loads of crops and other supplies. Uh, manpower, they supplied a tremendous number of, of men to the, the Patriot armies. I read somewhere it was like proportionately eight times what other communities gave, some kind of ridiculous number. Uh, and uh, the value of the land, the Susquehanna River for transportation and navigation, uh, it was really a, a valuable place and a valuable location. Uh, by attacking, disrupting this area, capturing this area, they could, the, uh, the Loyalists, the British, the Indians could do a lot of damage to the Patriot cause. And uh, a lot of them also wanted revenge against the people who lived here. And the Iroquois still felt as though they had a claim to this land. So they had the additional motivation of trying to clear it out so they could, they could get a grip on it again. We mentioned the people who lived here were essentially New Englanders, transplants. Uh, do you think that is why they had such strong Patriot sympathies because so much occurred in, in around Boston in the early parts of the war? The fact that Wyoming Valley was mostly made up of New Englanders was very important to the fact that they were also mostly Patriot. Uh, New England was really the engine that drove the revolution. Even though there was some support in Virginia, uh, those were essentially the colonies that were mainly uh, mainly Patriot, and, and that is uh, Virginia and New England. And without New England, you wouldn't have had the revolution. We've talked about why this Indian Loyalist force won a strike here in the Wyoming Valley. Uh, can we talk about what their specific goals were? What, what did they want to do when they got here? The original plan of John Butler in this campaign was more grand and glorious than it eventually turned out to be. His plan was to take this force of Loyalists and Indians, travel down the Susquehanna River by boat, unscathed, attack Wyoming, destroy it, attack Sunbury, which also had Fort Augusta, the most powerful fort on the frontier, attack and destroy that, continue unscathed down to Middletown, then cut east overland for 85 miles through heavy Patriot territory, through Washington's army, and then join with the British army which had recently captured and occupied Philadelphia. And he was gonna do all this with 700 men. Now, I um, offer the contemplation of this to the viewers as to whether this was realistic or not. However, it all became academic because right before the expedition was to leave to come down the Susquehanna, word came to John Butler that the British had left Philadelphia. And because of strategic necessity, 
had to return to New York City, which was their main base. Therefore, this whole crowning glory campaign of his became pointless and it devolved into simply an attack on Wyoming. Wyoming being chosen mainly because uh, so many men from the valley, as Mark has mentioned, uh, were away fighting in Washington's army, which was unheard of on the frontier. And he felt that Wyoming would be, how shall I say, easy pickings. Probably another reason was a lot of the Indians that he had with him were Senecas from western New York. They'd come a long way hoping for rewards like plunder, scalps, and perhaps prisoners. Now what was John Butler going to do? He couldn't send them home empty-handed. If he tried to do that, they may have gone, but they would have returned with one other object, John Butler's scalp. So Wyoming offered him an out, and he took it. In my opinion, and it's just an opinion, that was really why this uh, attack on Wyoming occurred, because of the effects of his larger campaign failed. We mentioned that this area had some history of conflict between colonies. Uh, was there any way it could defend itself? Were there forts here leading up to this battle? There were forts in Wyoming Valley of various times, types. I should call them fortifications. There were two that were proper forts. Uh, they were Forty Fort and Wilkesbury Fort on either side of the river in the central valley, or the cent center part of the valley. In the rest of the valley were other types of fortifications that were called forts, but they were less than forts. They were simply uh, a collection of blockhouses or even just regular houses surrounded by stockades. And there were also in various areas in the area simple blockhouses which were unprotected by stockades. And these would be used by the people in, the, in Wyoming Valley based on their location. There were six townships in Wyoming Valley and each of the townships had one or more of these fortifications. Uh, they were expanded on and completed from the years 1772 to 1778 just before the battle. And they maintained the best protection that the settlers could achieve from any attack from the outside. Mark, uh, how would these local people who lived here, how would they would have used these forts in the event of an attack? Well, uh, the smaller forts, uh, as Bob mentioned, were just stockades around regular people's houses, so they, they lived there anyway. Now, I guess in times of difficulty, in times of danger, uh, the neighbors in the, in the surrounding area would draw in toward these forts, uh, get some measure of protection behind the walls. Uh, we had, uh, the small family fortifications were uh, the Jenkins Fort in West, uh, West Pittston today and Fort Wintermoot, which is in Exeter Borough today. Uh, Forty Fort was the, the largest, strongest fort that's going to play into the story of the Battle of Wyoming directly. Uh, and Fort Pittston, which was a strong, uh, strong fort on the other side of the river that didn't factor in that much. Did the settlers who live here have any indication that uh, Sayangarakta and John, uh, John Butler's 
joint army was coming this way. Wyoming Valley had a system of spies that were sent north to find out if anything was going on up there, mainly because that's where Butler's Rangers were and the Iroquois Confederation, which sided with the British. And since Indians were now being used by the British, that's where the danger would come from. So they did have warning about that. And also uh, uh, John Jenkins Jr., who was an, uh, a local officer, uh, had been captured by the Indians, found out about this attempted attack on the valley and escaped and came back to warn the valley. So uh, they were well, well informed. They knew it, it was coming. They possibly hoped that for some reason it wouldn't materialize, but unfortunately it did. Okay, we've set the table now for the uh, Battle of Wyoming. Some call the Wyoming Massacre. Uh, let's, let's talk about it. So we've established that we have John Butler and the Rangers and their Indian allies, mostly Senecas and some others. Uh, they were mainly headquartered in Fort Niagara, which is still there in between uh, Canada and New York. Uh, they started heading south, uh, partly by canoe down the river. Um, their size estimate varies greatly. I've, I've seen as small as 500, as high as 1,200, but we know that they had many more men than the Patriots had here. Uh, they sailed down to a point just north of the valley, then they, they disembarked, uh, they went on land, they started sending out little raiding parties and scouting parties. Uh, one of the raiding parties found a group of farmers in uh, what is now Exeter Township, a town called Harding, uh, and the f they were working on the farm of the Harding family. Uh, and there was a, an ambush and the, the raiding party killed these farmers and that was like the first bloodshed of the, uh, the Wyoming campaign. Uh, word spread quickly, people started, you know, obviously they knew at this point they were in trouble. There was something big moving in from the north. Uh, they started heading to the forts, they started discussing what they might want to do next. Yes, the uh, Wyoming Valley re received its first actual warning that the enemy invasion was near, was from the Harding Massacre, as, as it was called. And what happened then was on the morning of July 1st, Nathan Dennison and Zebulon Butler, the co-commanders of the defenders of the valley, organized the militia at 40 Fort, about 400 of them. They marched out to the spot of, of the Harding incident, found two mutilated bodies with two Indians sitting nearby. They killed the two Indians, one of which was purported to be the son of Queen Esther, an important Indian woman who accompanied the expedition. That has not been established, but that's a possibility. They then tried to find where the rest of the invasion force was, but they couldn't. About this same time, two of the Wintermoot family left Wintermoot's fort and climbed the steep to Mount Lookout on the ridge overlooking Wyoming Valley. That is where Butler's Rangers and the Indians were. And he spent the whole day, they, they spent the whole day there informing John Butler on everything he needed to know about the valley. After the militia, which was out near the uh, Harding site, uh, 
were not able to find out where Butler's Rangers and the Indians were at this point, uh, they returned to the valley, to 44, where most of them dispersed uh, to go back to see to the safety of their families. In the early evening of July 1st, the two Wintermutes, along with John Butler and a small contingent of rangers came down into the valley and camped just outside of Wintermoot's Fort. Then the two Wintermoots and one of the officers in the rangers came to Wintermoot's Fort, asked for entrance, and the guard at the gate said, well, who's that third person? And they were, uh, the guard was told that it was a friend, so he let them in. And of course, what happened then, the garrison of Fort Wintermoot, which was about 10 to 12 patriots, uh, were startled and understood for the first time now that the Wintermoots were really secret Tories. At that point, they only had about 10 or 12 in the garrison. The uh, British officer, or the, uh, the, the, the Loyalist officer claimed that he had a strong force out there and they knew a strong force was coming. So they decided there was no way that they could defend Wintermoot's Fort, so they did agree to a capitulation. And that was that they decided they agreed to surrender the fort, any weapons or ammunition they had, promised never to fight again in the war, and then John Butler eventually promised that they would, uh, their lives would be spared. And John Butler then, a few moments later, perhaps, uh, came into Wintermoot's Fort, used it as his headquarters for the remainder of the battle. Then the rest of the Tory uh, Loyalist and Indian force came down into the valley and encamped at Wintermoot's Fort. Let me just say now quickly that uh, on the morning of, the, of July 2nd, Jenkins Fort, which had even a smaller garrison, also capitulated. And then an interesting happened. An interesting thing happened. The scouts from Forty Fort were able to observe this patri this loyalist uh, encampment there, and they knew now that not only was this invasion force around, but they were actually in the valley and that they had a force that was estimated at about 600. And they already, and the Patriots then already knew that they were outnumbered. When they reported this back to Forty Fort, panic gripped the community. And at that point, Nathan Dennison and Zebulon Butler tried their best to reach all the outlying families to get them to come to their local fortifications. And, and there they remained. Then, on the morning of July 3rd, a flag of truce appeared at Forty Fort, uh, held by one of the persons who capitulated at Wintermoot's Fort, along with an Indian and a ranger. They asked entrance to the fort to see Nathan Dennison, and they received it. They went in and they told Nathan Dennison what John Butler's terms for capitulation of Forty Fort were. And they were essentially the same as those for Wintermoot's Fort and Jenkins, 
except that Denison would have to capitulate for all the remaining forts in the valley and all continental soldiers, anybody from Washington's regular army, would have to be surrendered as a prisoner of war. And that meant sent to a series of prison ships in New York Harbor for, and from all accounts, they were, that was really a hellhole to be in. So Denison realized that they weren't going to capitulate at this point. So he then went across to, the, to uh, Wilkes-Barre Fort where uh, Zebulon Butler was, consulted with him, and then decided that what should be done was to not accept the capitulation terms, send this party that came to the fort back to Wintermoot's fort, and then send out messages to all the forts in the area to send to 40 Fort every militiaman who had not yet reported there, including as many as could be spared from the alarm companies. Now, the alarm companies were men in their 50s who were not required to fight, but were required to protect and defend forts. You know, a man in his 50s in Nathan Dennison and Zebulon Butler's time looked a lot older than a man in his 50s today. They did not have advanced technology. They did not have advanced medicine. So they tended to be worn out physically by the time they reached 50, and they were not required to fight. But they had to participate in defense of the forts. And eventually what happened is by noon on July 3rd, um, as many militiamen as would report to 44 did report, and they had about 375, including 100 of the alarm company men. We sometimes hear stories about the Battle of Wyoming being fought by old, older men. That was partly true, but not totally. It was only about one-fifth of the force that went out to fight that was these older men in their 50s. And there wasn't anybody over 50, over 60, who had participated in the battle. We have these two forces now prepared to fight. Let's talk about the battle. Most of the, the Patriots had gathered at 40 Fort, um, and they faced the decision of what are they going to do from here. Uh, they didn't want, some of them wanted to march out and fight immediately. Uh, they wanted to get the enemy out of, out of the valley as soon as possible because they knew that the enemy was going to ransack their houses, steal their crops, burn their crops, ruin everything that they've been building here. Uh, but the other contingent was saying, we better not, because we don't know what we're facing. We don't know how many men they have. We don't know how prepared they are. Um, so it came down to this struggle between what do we do, what do we not do? Um, Zebulon Butler and Nathan Dennison, they were thinking we should be more cautious. We should wait. We've asked for reinforcements. We've asked uh, Washington to send home some of the men from Wyoming to help us. Um, but there were other, other patriots there, uh, Lazarus Stewart being the most well-known among them who were really ready to go out and fight. They didn't want to wait. They didn't want to see everything they built be destroyed. So uh, over a long period, they discussed this. 
They even left the fort and they stopped to have another war council and they discussed it again and again. Uh, the, uh, the overwhelming feeling was that they would have to go forward and face this threat. At the time when they went out of the fort and began to have this second discussion, as, as Mark mentioned, they were on an elevation. And Zeblin Butler had second thoughts at that point, and, and he tried to convince them again now, maybe they shouldn't get involved. They should, they should remain at the elevation, and that would tend to negate their lack of numbers and, uh, because of the height of it. And he tried to persuade them, but he didn't want to seem like a coward. And uh, there seemed like some type of hysteria possibly just pervaded the militia and they just wanted to go out. And they did. So at three o'clock, they left the height and proceeded toward Wintermoot's Fort where the enemy was. About four o'clock in the afternoon, they emerged from a thicker wooded area to um, an area which was more open with just sparse trees. And so Zebulon Butler then ordered the men to establish a battle line. And these uh, 350 militiamen, plus some Continental soldiers who had uh, come home to fight uh, and protect the valley, uh, established a battle line of about three to 400 yards with spaces in between them. At that point, Zebulon Butler, who was the more experienced of the two and was, uh, by agreement of both of them, the one who would make the tactical decisions, then assigned Nathan Dennison to command the left side of the line, while um, Zebulon Butler, by the way, no relation to John Butler, the enemy commander, uh, Zebulon Butler would command the right. And then they set off again. And at about five o'clock, they began to see the enemy. And they were about 250 yards apart. The enemy also at that point had 350 men, loyalists and Indians, established along a fence near Fort Wintermoot, or Wintermoot's Fort. Equal numbers with the militia. But John Butler, the enemy commander, had an ace up his sleeve. And that is 350 extra Indians that were there were secreted in a swamp or a swampy area far from their right side, the right side of the, of the enemy line. And they were there to emerge at the most propitious moment in order to attack the left side of the Patriot line. That was the plan, that was the trap of John Butler that he wanted to get them into. But as I, as I was saying, about five o'clock, both sides could see each other. And Zebulon Butler ordered a few volleys to be fired at the enemy, which did not respond. So they moved forward some more until they were about 100 yards apart. This was about 5.15 in the afternoon. At that point, Zebulon Butler halted the line. The Tories fired, or the Loyalists fired. 
and then general firing started back and forth, and the battle began. We've established that finally the two groups are meeting face to face. Uh, I also want to note that Fort Wintermoot had actually been set on fire to help create the illusion uh, that the Loyalists were retreating to help draw in the Patriots. But anyway, the Patriots and the Loyalists were facing off face to face, and the Indians suddenly attacked from uh, the Patriots' left side of the line. This caused a lot of confusion. Uh, mostly, most people on that line were militia who were less well prepared as the professional troops. Uh, they misinterpreted their orders. They ordered to fall back, to wheel back a little bit to face the Indians coming in from the north, but they misinterpreted that as retreat. And so they broke and ran. Uh, and the, the loyalists and the Indians followed them. And at that point, I always would think that the Battle of Wyoming ended and the Wyoming Massacre began. They're two distinct elements. Uh, because the Patriots were defeated running, trying to get back to 40 Fort. Uh, the Indians were pushing down from the north, the Loyalists were pushing from the east. Uh, and a lot of the Patriots, some got back to 40 Fort. Most got pushed to the river. Uh, some tried to cross to Monoconoc Island. Uh, dozens and dozens were shot or speared and scalped, tomahawked along the way. Uh, some were captured. Uh, some survived, some did all right. Most were murdered. Uh, the most famous episode of the Wyoming Massacre would be the Bloody Rock, Queen Esther's Rock. Uh, and it's, it's shrouded by legend. Nobody's exactly sure what happened, but so far as we could tell, uh, roughly a dozen, 15 or so Patriot captives were rounded up around a rock that's uh, still, still, we know where it is today. It's by the Susquehanna River, not far from here. Uh, and during a ceremony, they were made to put their heads down on this rock and an Indian woman would dance around and smash their heads in with a tomahawk. Uh, she's been identified maybe as Queen Esther. There's controversy as to whether that really was her, her sister. Nobody's sure now. A few Patriots escaped, but it's all hearsay. Um, so the Patriots made it. They got away from Wyoming Valley as fast as they could. The whole valley was lost. Um, uh, 44 had to capitulate, and it was pretty well emptied out. The effect of the, the invasion had been to completely disrupt the valley, destroy all the crops, all the homes, everything that was standing was destroyed. The Indians ransacked it, uh, took a lot of plunder, didn't harm any innocent civilians as far as anybody could tell. They, they made a promise not to harm women and children, and they didn't as far as anybody knows. Uh, but they were ruthless with the men. Anybody who had carried a gun at any point, anybody who resisted, was, uh, their life was forfeit pretty much. So about 200 plus Patriot men died, which was about two thirds of the fighting force. Absolutely devastating to the whole community. It was emptied out for many months, unlivable. Later in that year, soldiers started returning to pick up the dead uh, colonists started returning to start rebuilding their lives. And uh, from that point, again, in the long process of distress and suffering and struggling, Wyoming Valley started to build itself back up again. What do you feel the legacy 
of this battle should be? What's the big picture takeaway? I would say the legacy of, of the Battle of Wyoming uh, would be threefold. Number one, a word to the wise about making rash decisions. Second, a colorful history, although predicated on great suffering. And third, an example of and an admiration for the resilience of the first generation of settlers in Wyoming Valley. That was the same word that I wanted to say, resilience. I mean, for so much sadness, and there's so much sadness in all the history in this area. There's a lot of tragedies happened here, but wow, the people have always just come right back. And that's the amazing thing. I quickly wanted to mention the Wyoming Monument Association and the Wyoming Commemorative Association uh, maintains these beautiful grounds and this monument. And every year they have a wonderful ceremony around uh, July 4th, where they honor the dead and the, the people who were here back then and what they did. We mentioned the monument that sits behind us. What's the significance of it? It, um, well, uh, about a, a, mo a month after the battle, uh, George Washington ordered um, the Wyoming men that were in the Continental Army to come back to the valley and form a garrison here. And because of that, the people began to trickle back in again. That garrison eventually went and picked up the bodies, as, as many as, as they could find, and buried them in a common grave. Years later, it was decided that maybe some type of a monument should be raised uh, in memory of them. And can their remains be found? They searched around if anybody knew where these remains were. Somebody said they thought they knew, and they made exploratory diggings and found bones. Very few, actually. Dug them up and then placed them in, in a casket. And then when the monument was finally complete, it was placed in the monument on a lower level. So it's a monument and a, a tombstone. Uh, exactly. It's a very sacred place for our local history. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. And remember to pick up a copy of our new book, Battlefield, Pennsylvania, written by yours truly. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Mm -hmm.